up is those four topics would be agreed upon among any group that was actually Christian. So in other words, in the first four that we were discussing, if you disagreed, this wasn't an issue of whether you were Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterian or non-denominational. This was an issue of whether or not you were Christian. Now we're in the identifying beliefs, and these are the things that would make us Baptist, that would make us what we are. There can be disagreement in these categories. I don't disagree with any of these categories. That's why we do it this way. But to disagree here is not to not be Christian. It's just to be wrong. <laughs> that, of course, someone on the other side would say exactly the same thing. So I'll do my best in just such a short time frame to give the basics about this question. So just to recap, so we gave the four things in the identi- sorry, in the foundational beliefs. So creational monotheism, big fancy word for how many gods? One. One. What did he do? That is part of what makes him God. He's creator. And he is how many persons? Three persons. We went over that. And then we looked at the two main historical events of the gospel. What are those two main historical events? Technically death and resurrection. The the death requires the birth. And the resurrection usually does imply the exaltation or the ascension. But uh, specifically the death and resurrection. And then the third thing we looked at was just the doctrine of salvation. And we summarized that into five things. Remember what those things are called. The five solas, which is five alones. So in other words, five questions that have one answer. And so one is where do we get our authority? Scripture alone. Who can save us? Christ alone. What, what thing can we do that will justify us? Faith alone. Why does God save us? Grace alone. Another way to ask why is God saved. To what end does God save us to his glory alone? And that's just the way a way of looking at the doctrine of salvation. And then the fourth one um, was bodily resurrection. And when we say bodily resurrection, um, we could think of two different things that are related, but not exactly the same. That Jesus rose from the dead in what way? <coughs> Physically. So the tomb isn't symbolically empty. It's literally empty. He's in the same body that had been crucified on the cross. That's why he has the nail holes. That's why he has the scar. It's literally the same body. Now, what's the other side of that conversation? The resurrection of the dead. What's that a reference to? Ours. That's, That's eternity for us. As human beings, we will be raised from the dead and live with Christ on this planet for all of eternity. So these are basic elements of Christianity. Every ancient creed you could read contains these. Um, In some fashion, might not use the words we use, but the idea is present in all of those. So those are foundations. I have a question. What you got? You may need to tell me to just hold on to it for some other time. Why do we not count the virgin birth as one of those Because you could technically disbelieve the virgin birth and still believe the gospel. Um, but just like with all of the things we're going over in the identifying beliefs, I mean, I firmly and convictionally believe in all of these things and would argue with you if you disagreed. But I would say you could be a believer, a real believer, and get something wrong. 
And so really we're just saying the ones in that first category are so fundamental to disbelieve them is to not be saved. Whereas, you know, you could just be very wrong, but still saved. Does that make sense? So I'm not endorsing disbelief in the virgin birth at all, but it wouldn't necessarily exclude you from salvation to be wrong there. Okay. So now, identifying beliefs. The first thing we covered were, were the two ordinances. What are those two ordinances? Baptism, baptism and the Lord's Supper. So we, we do baptism by immersion, so underwater, because it matches the symbolism of death and resurrection. We also do it with adults or believers only. It could be a younger person, but the idea is they're old enough to profess faith in Christ as opposed to infant baptism. Then with the Lord's Supper, we got to do a lot of things there about the presence of Christ, but we said it's a true sacrament in that there's a, a blessing that comes through it, not a saving that comes through it, but some blessing to it. And then from that, we looked at, oh, what was last week? I just lost off the top of my head. Congregational polity, exactly. So how is our church governed? So we looked at how we are not governed by an outside entity. So we're a congregational church, which means... Our church governs itself, and within that conversation, we govern ourselves in the form of elders. That can happen in different ways. So there's different kinds of congregational. That's the kind that we are, and now we are looking at worship. And so um, the basic idea here is we would say we're, we have non-charismatic worship. The problem is, is the word charismatic means 100 different things to 20 different people. And so we need to be very particular about what we're talking about. So to answer that question, we're going to give a very, uh, I guess, entry-level definition of worship. What do we even mean by worship? And then we're going to get more specifically to that question of what about spiritual gifts in worship? So in a sense, we're going to open a lot of can of worms here. I recognize that. And we're not going to be able to sort through every worm from every can we open. Um, we're just going to try to get the big, the fattest worms in the densest cans. Is that fair? Does that work for y'all? Because we're trying to do all of this in 45 minutes. Fair enough? Okay, so grab your outline. All right, so what does it mean to worship? So let's just brainstorm that. What would you say? What does it mean to worship? Praise. Praise. Praise the Lord. That's not a bad definition Isn't at all. Sacrifice going or something. Sacrifice is commonly what the Bible means when it says worship. Bow down. Bow down. Okay. In what sense? Submission. 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 Okay. That, that's in the right direction. So let's just talk about Hebrew is a little harder. We're going to talk about the Greek word. Um, the Greek word for worship means to kiss. But the idea is that you have lowered down to kiss the ground does that make sense so it's a so tim said bow i'm scared to draw a person bowing let's see okay you get what i'm saying so here's a person standing up there's feet down there maybe you're kissing the feet that's the concept of the word who would you do that to so someone in authority. So in the ancient world, let's just rewind 2,000, 3,000 years ago. In what context would you do this? Royalty. Royalty. A king. So a king you acknowledged. 
or a king that had overpowered you, right? There's a strong connection between authority and worship and between submission and worship. This is constant throughout culture. It's especially true in the Bible. So that next sentence, in the most general sense, worship is living life in grateful obedience to the one true God. It is the opposite of idolatry. All right, so let's just turn to Exodus 20. You know what happens in Exodus 20, right? What's what's that passage known for? The what? The Ten Commandments. Exodus 20. I want you to see how some of these are worded. Now, do you remember what happens uh, when Moses comes down off of the mountain? Finds them, they're they're worshiping. Worship is what's happening at the bottom of the mountain. You may remember they got together, they melted down their gold, they put the gold in a cauldron, and then magically, out of this cauldron, a cow from that gold walks out. And they give the cow a name. And what's the cow's name, do you know? Yahweh. Yahweh. But why shouldn't they have said that? Whose name is that? This is God's name. Yahweh comes out, this calf, this cow, and they start to worship it. They ascribe to it um, glory. They ascribe to it the reason that's that cow is what got them out of Egypt. Well, which is ridiculous, because who got them out of Egypt? Well, Yahweh did, but not, not that one. All right, so look at what's happening with the Ten Commandments. So you can think about it like this. Moses is receiving these instructions, and it's kind of a positive parallel of a negative situation that's happening at the foot of the mountain, right? So, and God spoke all these words saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You see, it's not, not a calf, not this idol of your making. Who brought you out of Egypt? Me, God saying, I did that. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, we've talked about that a lot in recent months. Um, an idol is not something you put before God. It's anything that gets into this category. Right? So it doesn't matter if you worship God most and you only worship money a little bit. Well, if you only worship money a little bit, what is money to you? A God. It's a God. It's an idol, and you're worshiping it. You need to stop. So God is operating in a space where he stands alone. And so worship, we'll see how he words this. So don't make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So what's he saying? What's the thing they're not supposed to do with these graven images? So, So bow down or serve. Worship is the issue of idolatry. So if you're worshiping anything other than God, you are committing idolatry. So we could say true worship, then, is the opposite of idolatry. So do you see how obedience, how submission, how um, reverence of the one true God is what we're talking about by worship? All right, so let's keep going. Number three, um, worshiping, one way we could say it, is delighting in who God is 
and acknowledging our position before him. Turn to Psalm 100. You probably know Psalm 100. Um, Psalm 100 is one of the famous psalms. You know how it starts off, right? What's the, what's the first thing you do? This is just going to be my idea of God there. I'm trying not to break the commandment. Um, so God's up there, and let's just let's just read Psalm 100. It says, "Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth." So we're shouting out, shouting out to the Lord. This joyful. Now, as a kid, the main point of joyful noise was always the fact that it was noise and not, not sound. Of course, that's not the main point of the verse, though. What's the main point of the verse? What kind of sound is it? It's a happy sound. It's a joyful sound. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. All the earth serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. Now when you read the Psalms, you will find verse after verse after verse after verse of statements about who God is. You are God. You are almighty. A lot of statements about who God is. So there's this you're God in the you are sort of way. You are God. That's capital G. There's a sense in which worship is half you are God, and the other half is, I am not. See how he says that there? What are we? It is he who has made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. You'll see this all over the Psalms. There's this, you are God, we're not. So you'll see both statements about God... And you'll see statements about who we are in comparison to God. We'll look over at the next psalm, um, Psalm 101. So I will sing of steadfast love and justice. So I'm going to praise, but I'm still saying something about God. God's steadfast. He's just. But I'm going to sing because of that. Do You see, there's this, it's acknowledging where you are by acknowledging what and where he is in relation to you. That's why we get excited when we, we sing about Jesus, where it's a humbling work to sing about Jesus, because by default, we're saying, you're better. We're lesser, you're greater. And we're doing that not in the sorrowful way that a king has conquered his enemies, and the enemies look up and say, oh, woe is us, you, you are this great, mighty king. We're doing it with a joyful noise, delighting and who God is acknowledging our position before him. All right, so that's general worship. Let's be a lot more specific now. And let's talk about when we use the word worship, we could mean it in that general sense. But usually when you hear the word worship, we're talking about what happens in this room on a Sunday morning, right? So the Bible uses the word worship. Usually it's talking more in that general sense of obedience, that general sense of your attitude, your submission to God, your, your recognition of who he is day to day, we want to talk about what's happening on a Sunday morning when we get together, uh, worshiping as the gathered body of Christ. Now, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 
chapter 1. So this word blessed, if we make that a verb, I guess that's blessed, it is a verb, verb instead of blessing, but it's blessed and it's a verb, who is usually the subject? If you're going to use blessed in a sense, well, usually it's, it's in the form of God bless blank, right? That's how we usually say it, right? But it could also be reversed where God is on this side. How's that feel? How can you bless God? So, you ever been to a funeral and you heard someone give a eulogy? Heard that phrase before? What usually happens in a eulogy? Speaking about how good. It's like, doesn't matter if this is a crack addict, doesn't matter if this dude's burning in hell. During this eulogy, that dude and Jesus were tight, right? I mean, you've been to funerals where it happens like that, okay? Well, it makes sense, though, because this is two Greek words put together. Tim, can I quiz you? Do you have any idea? <laughs> it's related. But the, the logi is different. This part's the same. Okay. This is logos. Word. You is good. Good word. You say a good word about them. You eulogize them. All right? See what Paul does here. Ephesians 1.3. He says, eulogy be the God and Father of of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's he doing here? He's speaking a good word about God. He's not going to come up with anything on his own. In fact, if you read what it is that he's going to say, look at how the next um, phrase goes. Who has eulogied us in Christ with every spiritual eulogy in the heavenly places? So we're going to, bless the name of the Lord by recounting the blessings he's blessed us with. You see how that works? This is the basic idea. We gather together as the body of Christ to bless the name of Christ, to extol, to proclaim, to make much of what God is doing. So we gather to bless the Lord. Now, furthermore, we gather to build up the body. You can still see this in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. Um, we'll skip down to the last part there. So God has given us these spiritual gifts. And then in verse 16, from whom the whole body being joined and held together by what every joint is equipped when every part is working together, it makes the body grow up so that it builds itself up in love. This is what we do when we get together. We're, we're using our gifts and we're worshiping the Lord. Our goal is that we should build the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is what? Church. It's the church. So we're really saying we gather together to build ourselves. Now, does that feel as good when you say that? It feels a little self-serving, doesn't it? So would you rather say we gather together to make much of the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord? Or we can say we gather together to grow as the body of Christ. They're the same thing. And that's what I want you to see as we work through this. I'm going to say a few things in here that are a little um, counterintuitive. So next point, worship 
is for people, not for God. I got some eyes on that one. Worship is for people, not God. Think about this. Let's just go back to ancient Israel. Did God command his people to worship him? Yes. All over the place, right? There's The book of Psalms, in a sense, is God saying, praise me, praise me, make much of my name, praise me. So God, then, does he just have this ego trip that he really needs us to, to praise him? Have you ever been around somebody that was fishing for compliments? I'm one of those guys, if you're fishing for a compliment, I'm more likely not to give it. Or say something sarcastic just because it makes me feel awkward. I'm not saying that's the right thing to do. It just makes me feel awkward, and that's what happens. All right, but you know what I'm talking about. Or somebody that just really needs to be praised heavy. Is that what's happening in the Old Testament with God? Like the, the obvious answer should be no. No, not at all. In fact, how often in the Old Testament did God need his people to do something so he could survive? I mean, does, if God gets hungry... Is that why he invented the sacrificial system? Because no. he's really hungry and he needs you to sacrifice that cow, sacrifice that, well, not, I was going to say pig, sorry, not nail does <laughs> sacrifice that animal and uh, feed him. And he tells us if, if he was hungry, he wouldn't even tell you. He could take care of that on his own. God does not need you for anything. In fact, in the passage, the Psalm 50, 12 there that I referenced, God's saying he doesn't even need you to give him your 10%. He doesn't need you to give him a cattle on a hill because it's already his cattle on his hill. Like you don't have anything that you can give him because it's really all his stuff. That's like when Blaze will do this. He'll go through my change drawer in my, my bedroom, find a quarter, and be like, Daddy, I want to give you this quarter. And it's like, thanks, son. I appreciate that. And I just put it right back in my stash of quarters. It was mine to start with. But God does not need us to do something to complete himself, which means worship, and we're going to reinforce this over and over again. Worship is not for him. It's for us. Worship is something God has given us for our good. Now, let's explain why. All right, so does God need more glory? He has all of it. So, let's get a little nerdy for just a second. I'm going to give you a blank here. This is not a word you usually use. God is immutable. God is immutable. Anybody know the basic idea there? Scott does. does really do. he, really, he really does. Scott knows. Go ahead and do it, man. God doesn't change. God does not change. All right, well, let me give you some examples of this. All right, immutability is one of the core doctrines of God. It's, in fact, really every doctrine of God is every other doctrine of God. That's a complicated story for a different time. But immutability is the same thing as omnipresence. When we say God is omnipresent, what do we mean? He's everywhere, meaning he can't move. Motion is not something God can do because there's nowhere he isn't that he can go to. 
follow what I'm saying? He, he can't move. He can't progress through time. He can't learn. He can't think of something new. These are things God can't do. Because, I mean, can he be smarter today than he was yesterday? Can he be more God today than he was the day before? It's like the obvious answer to all these questions is no. God, God can't get more glory. It's not actually possible. It's not that he doesn't need it. It's that it can't be done. God can't get more glory in any sense. So that's what we mean when we say God is immutable. Now, there's a lot of scriptures that say this. James 1.17 is just one of them. There's no variation or shadow due to change in him. But let's fill in the next blank. Uh, we glorify God by showing his glory, not by creating more glory. Do you understand the difference? All right, so the illustration, we used it before. We did it when we did the five solas. You remember, we could magnify something with a microscope, and we take something small, we make it big. We could magnify something just in terms of adding to it. So the bucket analogy, God has a bucket full of glory, and we add more glory to it. Neither of those work. Do you remember what we said instead? More like a telescope. You look through a telescope. Are you making a star bigger? No. In fact, it's still nowhere near as big as it is. All you're doing is closing the gap. You're, you're getting closer to it. When we glorify God, all we're doing is closing the gap. We're letting people see and we're demonstrating a glory that already exists. Jesus is manifesting God's glory, and we all we do is show it. We cannot create it. All right, and then the last point under there, because we got to... The debate's going to come in with the spiritual gift spark, so let's keep going. All right, we need to see God's glory. And I want you to read this verse. This, this one's very important. 2 Corinthians. Second Corinthians 3.18. This is the glory of the new covenant. 2 Corinthians 3.18. 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So what are we looking at that's changing us? We're seeing His glory. Have you ever beheld the glory of the Lord in any sense? I don't mean in the to its fullest sense. Look, it's not even possible. But have you beheld his glory in any sense before? What, what happened to you? Did it have any lasting effect on you? Of course it did. It could happen in reading a Bible passage. It could happen in a worship service. It could happen in a sunset. It could happen in a lot of ways. But you, you see God's glory, and it does a work in you guys. We can't survive without this. This is what we are. In fact... What's the main thing we have fallen short of and failed to do as human beings? The glory of God. The glory, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Well, what's the human vocation? What did we get created to do? Another way to say that is we were created to be image bearers. We were created to display the very glory of God. We can't survive without that glory. We need it. So when we gather together for worship, we want to see God's glory because that is how we survive. So 
that's our basic background of worship. So how does the Holy Spirit work in a worship service? Number one, and this is just doctrine of the Holy Spirit. You need to know how this works. The Holy Spirit works to glorify the Son, precisely. The Holy Spirit works to glorify the Son. So Jesus, in uh, John 16, he's talking to his disciples in the upper room. He's about to have the high priestly prayer, the famous prayer. And he's talking about this helper, this comforter who's going to come. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. And he says, the Holy Spirit is going to glorify me. And he's only going to tell you what I told him to say is basically the the seal of paraphrase of that verse. But that's what the Holy Spirit is for. He comes to glorify the Son. So does that mean he's going to give the Son a new glory that he didn't have before? No. He's just revealing the true glory that he is. Well, do you ever feel like you need the Holy Spirit's help to see better? I don't mean physical sight, right? That's what he's doing. This is what the Holy Spirit came to do. So... We know of other things, though, that happen. So turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll look at verse 6. We'll look at several things here in 1 Corinthians. So, so stay here in 1 Corinthians. We'll, we'll be here a lot. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. I've put 6 on the outline. That's supposed to be 7. Verse 7. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So your next blank there, the Holy Spirit manifests in people for the building up of the church. Do you see that? Why do you have that manifestation of the Spirit? For the common good. Now what common good are we talking about in 1 Corinthians? Do you remember... This is the body of Christ. He's trying to build unity in the body, trying to edify the body, build up the body of Christ. You have a spiritual gift, which is what we mean by manifestation of the Spirit, specifically to build up the church. God uses various spiritual gifts to help the body of Christ grow. This is God's design. So you can look over um, at verse 11. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Or verse 18, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each of them as he chose. So who determines which part of the body you are? God does. And does he have purpose behind that choice? Yes, the common good. He's using that. And then we read Ephesians 4, 17 or 16 earlier, all of these parts that God has created, when they work together, the body grows. So we could say spiritual gifts then have that purpose of making the body grow. Now, this is not just a big church growth metaphor for how we can get more people in the church. We're talking about a much fuller sense of the word grow here. What kind of growth is this? It's a spiritual growth. This is sanctification. This is Christ likeness. These gifts are for that. So here's the question. Should we foster the demonstration and usage of spiritual gifts in the worship service? That's where the question comes down. So really, no matter how you answer this question, there shouldn't be much disagreement leading up to this point. This is what worship is. This is how God gets glory. We're here. We are here for us, not for God. He doesn't need us. 
to gather. He commands us to. It's an obedience thing, yes, but there's a benefit to worshiping. He's, he's called us to do this. So all of that should be clear. It should, shouldn't really be um, disagreed upon. But now, if we know he's given gifts for the sake of building the body, and as we gather together and we're trying to display the glory of God so that we could build the body, should we emphasize those manifestations of the Spirit? That's the question on the table. Everybody with me on the question? So just quick yes or no well, answer. What do you define, think the answer? Define what you mean by worship service. I mean this gathering. Okay. A, a Sunday morning gathering. We, the Church of Christ has gathered together to worship his name, to study the word. Should we push for demonstrations of spiritual gifts during the worship service? You're teaching, I hope you do it. <laughs> I mean, I would hope you would do whatever gift you had, right? Okay. So you're saying kind of? Or are you saying yes? You're saying, I'm saying yeah. No, I'm saying yes. So you're saying yes. But your question, you're, you're, asking, you're saying push for it. Push for it. Pushing for it. Okay. So we ought to, whatever we have as a spiritual gift, yes, we should exhibit. Okay. So you're making a nuanced difference so there. When your body comes yeah. together, you should use your spiritual gift. Yeah. Absolutely. I don't think anybody in the room should disagree with that statement. Okay. Agreed. And I like Ted. <laughs> you like Ted's? Okay. All right. Here's, here's how I want you to think through this. We should view spiritual gifts as tools. Tools. If I got people together and wanted to build the building, the point isn't to get together and see how cool my tools are. But should the tools be present? Absolutely they should be. Have you ever built or framed a house with a hammer? That's like Old Testament house framing. <laughs> New Testament spirit-filled house framing is a compressor and a nail gun. Once you've done it that way, then you can read the book of Hebrews and say the New Testament is greater. Like you have no question whatsoever about going back. The tools are important, but that's not why we gathered. But it's easy to de-emphasize the tools and then decide not to bring them. Or you can bring the tools emphasize the tools and not build the house. You follow what I'm saying? The balance of putting these tools in the right position is absolutely critical. So if your gift is service, should you exercise that gift on a Sunday morning? Yeah. If you're a Christian, part of your gift is service, by the way. Yeah. That's not like some people get that one. All right. If you're a teacher, you should be teaching. If, Oh, ooh. see, this building analogy is getting pretty good. So the contractor in this case, I guess this is going to be God in our analogy. Can you repeat the question? Oh, I'm so far off in this okay. sod trail. I don't even remember what the question oh, was. Should you use your All right, so should you use your spiritual gifts on a Sunday morning? Well, ideally, yes. That's what they're for, is for building up the body of Christ. Okay, now with that said, let's go a step further. And we're going to unpack kind of all of 1 Corinthians 14 in a minute, so we'll, we'll go back to some of these verses. Our spiritual gifts can be used in the church in harmful ways. All right, what if you've got a pastor who's really good at preaching, and he just wants everybody to come see how good he can preach? Run away. Run away. 
But he's a really good teacher, though. Look at how awesome he is. That's the point. That's right there. Oh, the no, we've, we've just elevated the tool. Right. <coughs> the pastor, hopefully he's a good teacher, but he's. it only matters if he's a good teacher if he's teaching the right stuff. The point is the stuff. He's only a good teacher in as much as the product is God's word and you understand it. Well, we can say the same thing with music, right? You, you've been to a concert, and we even have the lingo for that. You don't want Sunday morning to be a concert, or sometimes the lingo is a production, or to be a worship service. We didn't come here to see how awesome you can sing. Now, it certainly doesn't help if you can hurt if you can, but you can overemphasize your gifts, right? We can make gifts about us. I don't care what your gift is. Even if your gift is service, oh, I know people who have the gift of service and still have the ability to make the gift about them now. And there's glory in that gift. And there's a, look at how good a job I'm doing. You know what I'm talking about, right? You've all seen this. We've got to get the balance right. The tool can be excellent if you use it right. But you can use that tool in negative ways as well. We'll see that illustrated in 1 Corinthians 14 in just a second. So two statements to kind of summarize what we're saying here. The goal of worship is to put the glory of Christ on display. That's the goal. And remember, we said, is this for God's benefit or is this for our benefit? This is for our benefit, but that's the end game. We're putting the glory of Christ on display. Spiritual gifts are tools that help us display the glory of Christ. Think about it. What did we say the Holy Spirit's job was to do when he came? Jesus told us this in and the night before he was crucified, that he would glorify the Son. So if the Spirit manifests in you, somebody ought to be getting glorified. Who is that? It's Jesus. But we have a tendency, um, a spiritual gift manifests in us, and where's the glory go? On me, on you, on the one executing it. That's not what that's for. I'm manifesting this spiritual gift for the sake of Jesus being made much of, for Jesus being displayed. All right, so here's where the controversy comes in. Okay, so we still haven't narrowed down which gifts then are permitted in the worship service. Obviously, they need to be used. Teaching, we would say, is a fundamental gift, should be used every Sunday. The Bible would call that prophecy. So I'm going to, right out of the gate, talk about a category of gifts and under sign gifts in worship the sign gifts are for the confirmation of the word of God and ceased as gifts that is a very important clarification they ceased as gifts with the apostles now when we talk about sign gifts let's remind ourselves of what Peter what Paul what these guys were doing when they were going around preaching the gospel, Peter's shadow would fall on someone. And what would happen? That'd be healed. Right. Snot on a cloth from one of these guys touches you. What happens? You get healed. The demons were talking about these guys. Remember the seven sons of Sceva trying to cast out a demon in the name of Jesus that Paul proclaims? And the demons go... Well, obviously we know Jesus, and we've heard of Paul. 
but we don't know who you are, and, you know, no big deal. So the apostles are in a unique position and exercise a unique authority. That's why we're not going to have a healing service where Pastor Ron and all of his mighty faith gets in the front of the room and says, be healed, and we're not going to pass out hell. I'm not an apostle. I'm not writing scripture. We're not trying to confirm the word of God in some new glorious manner because that's done. Now, that's not in any way saying that God no longer does miraculous work. You ever known of God to do anything miraculous? I hope so. I've prayed for someone with cancer who went in to have an exploratory surgery to see how they were going to remove it and got in and it was gone. It was on the scan last week. It's not there now. Medical mystery. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, so I had this one scenario, and this is just weird. I'll give you that. But I was in my dorm room one time. I was a college student and really lazy college student. And I was really proud of myself because I was having a quiet time. You know, in the beginning of my day, about 3 in the afternoon. And so I got up early, you know, and was having a quiet time. And uh, I had a really social roommate, and I was a super not social guy. So, like, no one ever came to the room for me. You know what I mean? They came to our room because of my roommate. Well, he wasn't there. I'm on the couch, a good, a solid six feet from the door. And uh, somebody comes in the room looking for my roommate. Says, Boyko here. I was like, no, Boyko's not here. And then the guy walks out of the room, but he left the door open. I was, you know, first I was angry because I, finally, I was doing this quiet time thing. I was proud of myself. And uh, now I'm mad because somebody interrupted it and left the door open. I was at a boy's dorm. It's super loud out there. And then I had this thought. I was like, God, would you close my dorm room door for me? And I was like, oh, that was dumb. Why would I pray something like that? No lie. As soon as that happened, a guy walked past my room, looked in, saw me on the couch, closed my door, and kept going. And I was like, yes, sir. <laughs> it just went good. Weird stuff happens. I'm not in any way in this point trying to say that God doesn't heal. He, absolutely he does. Things like this happen all over the place. But there is a difference between what Benny Hinn claims to be and what God is actually doing around the globe. Okay? So if someone promises if you send in the seed money, then you'll be financially blessed to turn the channel. Right, don't go to a healing service where you've got some mystic healer or some apostle who's got magic power. Why is he at a service instead of the hospital? Right, that's not real. God is. What he does is real. So let's talk about some other gifts then. The gifts of tongues and interpretation are evangelistic gifts most likely never to be used in a gathered worship service. Okay, so lots of stuff going on here. we got to unpack, and it's going to take every bit of the, the nine minutes I have left. All right, so I am of the camp that believes tongues is a legit gift now. Not everybody does. Um, I believe because of what's happening in 1 Corinthians, it is most certainly not apostles that they're talking about who are speaking in tongues. It's, it's their normal church members doing it. And so I, I think it happens. But I want to explain what I think is happening in 1 Corinthians, which is radically different than what happens in most modern settings when people go into the whole tongues thing. Okay, y'all ready? 1 Corinthians 
chapter 14. Let's walk through this as quickly as we can. All right, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Quick note, we don't have time to prove this, but the biblical word prophecy does not mean tell the future. Um, The biblical word prophecy is one of the Greek words for speak. And so to speak, prophecy has to be a speaking of tongues is a type of prophecy if it's interpreted. Like it's any kind of speaking gift. So everybody needs to be able to do that gift. You see what he's saying? Desire that one. That's the one you need to search for. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. So the word tongue here is their word for language or a different language. If you speak in some different language, the idea is nobody in the room knows what you're saying, so you're not talking to them. You must be talking to God. You, you follow what he's getting at? So if you, if you speak in a tongue, you're not speaking to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. So in a public setting, anyway, that doesn't seem to have much use. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. You see how he's comparing these two gifts. Tongues is useless to everyone else. And it may be something for you, but it's certainly not for you for anybody out here. But if you prophesy, you do a public spoken gift. And I would say even singing a good song, preaching a good sermon, reading the word, sharing a testimony, all of that would fall into this category. You do something like that, it's gonna have more impact than just this speaking in a tongue. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, so it's it's only personal at best, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets. Well, why is that unless someone interprets in there? Because if it's interpreted, then it's a type of prophecy. You follow what I'm saying? All right, so... Unless it's interpreted, so that the church may be built up. What's his metric? How is he determining, or what he's saying, one gift is better than the other? What's his metric? What's his standard for making that call? One builds up the church, one only builds up you. Which one's better? The one that builds up the church. All right, keep going. The whole chapter is about this. We'll we'll move quickly. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, so I'm, I'm rattling off in something you don't understand, How will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? See how he's putting all these things together? If even lifeless instruments, such as a flute or harp, do not give distinct sounds, how will anyone know what is played? Yeah, follow that illustration, right? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech, that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, same word, and none is without meaning. Well, I don't think Paul's talking about children because I think they have languages that are without meaning. But you get what he's talking about, right? All these different tongues, they're real languages. But if I do not know the meaning of the language... I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. Y'all follow the basic idea that if I speak Spanish and you speak English and we aren't bilingual, we're foreigners to one another. 
Consequently, if I'm speaking in a tongue and you're speaking in English, we might as well still be foreigners to one another. That's useless. We can't communicate now. Verse 12, so with yourselves, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the body. So if the question is, do we want spiritual gifts present? Well, of course we do as a tool for building up the body. And if it doesn't build up the body, don't do it. That's his metric for speaking in tongues. He would say speaking in tongues doesn't build up the body, so don't do it. Prophecy does. Do it. Strive to do the ones that build up the body. And he's still not done. He's going to harp on this a little longer. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. So if you've got this tongue, you should pray for some interpretation because it's useless if you don't have that. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? Every time he's judging the gift on whether or not it's beneficial to the group. Um, let's see, verse, where are we at? 17. For you may be giving thanks well enough. Well, we wouldn't know. But the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinkings. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now, verse 22 is very important. If you can make sense of verse 22, you understand Paul's argument. Thus, tongues are a sign for believers, or no, sorry, not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. Now watch how Paul applies this. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers come in, all right, here's a scenario. We got a group of people together. The spirit is present. We're all speaking in tongues. An outsider comes through the door. Will they not say to you, you are out of your minds? So tongues is a sign to unbelievers that these people are crazy. That's what he just said, right? Yeah. When people, what happened at the Tower of Babel? They babbled. He confused the languages, and what happens? Completely destroys the unity that they had. You're destroying unity if you speak in tongues. People will come in and say, they're out of their minds. Verse 24, however, if we're all prophesying, so we're all speaking the truth of God, and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he's convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really 
among you. You see what's happening there? So is Paul trying to tell you not to speak in tongues at church? No. Kind of. <laughs> he's being very restricted about it. So he's going to give us a scenario. He's going to give us a, if it's going to happen, here's how it's got to happen. Right, what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation, let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three at the most, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let each one of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. So, if you don't have an interpreter, can you share? Well, how do you know before you share? If you're not sure, you haven't read it right. If you, you know whether there's an interpreter before you open your mouth. Think about it. What's a tongue? It's a language. I know no one needs to speak in tongues in this room. Why? We all speak English. Everyone in this room speaks English. That wasn't true in Corinth. What, what was the situation in Corinth? It's a melting pot culture. We look across the room and maybe, hey, today everybody here speaks Greek. But uh, next week, that might not be the case. There's a group. Hey. <laughs> All right, do, do you get what I'm, the point of tongues? Every time it's used in Scripture is to destroy the curse of the Tower of Babel. Not recreate it. Okay? You understand the difference? So... We have no desire or need to speak in tongues at church because pretty much every service we've got nothing but English speakers here. And so there's no need to speak in a tongue. So if you felt need to speak in a tongue, don't. Everybody here speaks English. Keep it to yourself, Paul would say. But if you had some weird inkling and there was a group of foreigners in the room, I don't know, I'd sit back and see what happened. You know? <laughs> I'd be curious. <laughs> but that's not going to be... So what happens when just overcome. I'll, I'll give an example. I'm, I was on this whole service. We started talking about all this. Mm-hmm. My arm is going to twitch. And I'm consciously not making sure yeah, that yeah, it doesn't yeah, go yeah. further than just a twitch. Okay. Okay. Now is, but is that not holding back the Holy Spirit? Verse 32, and the spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. What he's telling you, if you feel like you have this inkling to speak, you don't have to. You, just hold back? you can stop. They're subject to you. Because like, God's not an author of confusion, but of peace. And we're not trying to create that wild, crazy scenario that was going on at the bottom of Mount Sinai. Or he says, what do you say? Let everything be done in order? What verse was that in? The next one, right. And all the, what, Not the next one, is it? Where's it at? It was, we read it already. I've totally lost the verse. The word order is the word. It's in there. Read the, read the whole chapter. You'll see it. It's let everything be done in order. It's right before the time. 40. 40. Oh, that's right. It's the last verse. But all things should be done decently and in order. Paul expects them to have form, to have control to have system to have structure 
Um, that's totally acceptable. This We don't need to have a worldview that says, well, we just need to let the Spirit flow, and I don't need to resist anything going on, because no, you need to test the spirits. And so you need to know that it's of God, for sure, before you let it go. And uh, that's why sometimes if someone is sharing something and it's crazy, the elders might need to get in and, and shore it up a bit. So. Yeah, like like right now, Tim Tim got filled with the Spirit and he's out, you know. Uh, <laughs> okay, so point being, the way we view worship, and we can talk about a lot of things other than this, but that's the when we say non-charismatic worship, it means we're not trying to create an environment to make spiritual gifts the centerpiece of what we're doing. Spiritual gifts can help us glorify Christ and therefore build the body. Preaching is one. I think Scott leading worship is one. Different things we do on Sunday morning, even your service and the way you do coffee, the way you greet, all of those things help us build up the body of Christ. You're manifesting the glory of Christ through all of these things. But our goal isn't to create that spiritual moment. Our goal is to glorify Christ. We want to put him on display, display what Christ is doing, because that's the Spirit's goal. And we just want to follow suit with what the Spirit is supposed to be doing anyway. So I know there's a lot more that could come into this topic, but that's the main idea that we want to hit. Any 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 non-new, completely direction, new can of worm questions before we close out? If there is some super question you want to go over. I'm happy to afterwards, but uh, not not here. All right, let's let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight. We pray that you bless the the reading of your word. We pray that you bless our understanding of your word. Help us to think critically and think clearly. Um, about both the scriptures and how we obey them. God, I pray that you would help us to seek to use our gifts to glorify the name of Christ and to build up the body of Christ. Father, help us to be faithful. Help us to um, stir and to um, flame the gifts that we have given, but let us all earnestly desire um, the greater gift, that is prophecy, to proclaim the work of Christ with our mouths And God, I pray that you would bless in this way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right.